This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what FocusAid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try, and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D, and please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using And I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. This episode is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 267 of Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing, and I am so excited to finally be able to release my interview with Buck Branneman. 
Now, for those not familiar with Buck, he is basically a real-world horse whisperer. In fact, he was actually the advisor on the movie they made. But more importantly, his life story really parallels a lot of uh, people we had on the show. So he went through a pretty traumatic childhood, but was able to retain the kindness and compassion that he believed in, which then ultimately made him an incredible horseman. So I got to watch him work at uh, one of his clinics in Georgia. So you will hear about the 40-minute mark. The quality of the, the conversation will change as far as the, the audio quality. That's because the first 40 minutes was face-to-face. We ran out of time. So uh, he was kind enough to agree to a second part of a conversation so we could make it the full hour and a half. So an incredible conversation. The parallels between what he's seen with horses and what he's seen with people are striking and pertinent, not only just to us, the first responder, military, medical community, but basically every person on planet Earth and their horses and their dogs. So an amazing conversation. So before we get to the interview, as I always say, please take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on and subscribe to the show. Leave a rating. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are to people looking for this podcast. And then feedback. If you've got something to say, please, I'd love to hear your feedback too. And then most importantly, social media, email, word of mouth, share these incredible episodes. Bucks alone is going to be so moving to people in the horse community and then everyone else outside as well, as you will hear. And the more I can get you guys to share, the more ear holes his story gets to. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Buck Branneman. Enjoy. All right. Well, I, I want to start by saying thank you for inviting me here. Um, it was awesome to watch you work. I'm just going to do a little kind of shout out at the beginning. So I was referred to you by Josh Brolin, the the actor. He'd watched oh. your movie. His daughter, Eden, is very, very into horses as well. Um, a Navy SEAL friend of mine, he and his wife have come to attend. And my sister, who has her horse, uh, Tornado, in England, she also adores you so being a fireman and and coming from all these different places it's not just the horse world that's right that you've touched with the with the movie so i'll be yeah so all right so very first first question where are we right now on planet earth well you know i've been doing this these clinics for 37 years now and uh gosh it's it's taken me all over the world to places that I never imagined I'd ever get to experience or see. And all of that I owe to the horse. I would have <clears throat> never done all these things I've done if not for what the horse did for me. So, and where it goes from here, gosh, I don't know. I I, I still love what I'm doing. In a couple of years, I may... I may cut back a little bit of my clinics, but it doesn't mean I'll work less. I may start doing a few more clinics at home at the ranch so I can be home with my family. I guess if there was one thing left to do, and I've been sort of working on it off and on for a few years, I want the faraway horses to be made into a movie. Just because... I, th- I think it's a good story that has a good message for people that may be living at a really dark place in their life. And I wrote that book 
to encourage people to to believe that just because you might have a really tough family situation, that it's not a foregone conclusion that your whole life is going to be a failure and that you're going to follow the same path as maybe the people you were forced to live with, not by choice. And <clears throat> the book became a bestseller with the publisher putting in zero money to promoting it. It sold now almost 200,000 books by word of mouth. So the story has been a meaningful story to a lot of people. And I just feel like I'll be finished with it when we get it made into a film. We've, we've got a script and everything now, and it's just, it's really hard to get a movie put together. Uh, even though sometimes I'll, I'll watch TV a lot when I'm on the road and I'll see a movie and I'll think, somebody green-lighted that movie, and that is one of the worst pieces <laughs> of junk I have ever seen. But it still cost millions of dollars to make it when it was just garbage. And I just think, gosh, how many doors do I have to knock on? But I'll just keep knocking on doors. One will open up one of these days. Absolutely. And I think there's a, there's a paradigm shift as well where I think people are actually wanting those kind of stories now. You know, they've yeah, remade. Yeah, you hope so. Yeah. You know. yeah. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. They've remade almost every movie that I watched when I was a kid. Yeah. And, you know, so that's, it's already been made. You don't need to remake right. it. Right. But I think that even The Horse Whisperer, you know, I mean, some right. of Robert Redford's other movies, um, those are stories that people want. So I, I don't think it's if, it's definitely when. It's amazing to me that uh, we did The Horse Whisperer in 97. And uh, it got released in 98. So 21 years ago, that movie came out. And it was kind of a big deal. I didn't even realize it was that big a deal at the time because <laughs> I was so busy working on the film. But 21 years later, people still remember that movie. That's just, that's amazing to me. And uh, even even younger people, they'll say, oh, yeah, I know that movie. And it's like, you do? Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's so powerful. So I, I was introduced to, to Buck, the documentary, originally. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we said before we started recording, as a firefighter, I, I just saw the absolute parallel between not so much my life because I've been very blessed I, I had a very non-traumatic life but so many of the people I've had on the show that have really been through some horrible things as, as innocent kids just like right. you were yeah. and that parallel whether it's horses whether it's you know wh whatever the outlet is um, and that's kind of what I really wanted to explore with you because um, people just assume everyone's fine and then you pull the curtain behind you know look behind the curtain excuse me and then you realize oh my god you know some some of these people grew up in the most horrendous ways some of them spiral downwards and some of them were lifted up and that's obviously what you did and it's a story i think that needs to be heard yeah i you know it's a i try to encourage people to <clears throat> to not just accept things the way they are that there's a point in time that, regardless of your background, that you do have the opportunity to make choices. And, and there's a point to where it's no longer okay to blame your circumstance on somebody else. Whether it's your mother or father or aunt or uncle or grandpa or your siblings. There's a point to where I just think it's not okay. It's not healthy to just continue to... Uh, uh, be excused for where your life is 
and blame it on someone else. Yeah. Well, if I'd love to then just kind of revisit. So where, where were you actually born? I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Okay. So if you wouldn't mind, tell, tell me your family dynamic, how many siblings and what well, your parents I, did. Well, I, I did, we didn't live there very long. I just have one brother, Smokey, and uh, it wasn't too long after I was born in Wisconsin that my folks moved to California to around Thousand Oaks. And my dad was kind of a jack of all trades. He he was a union electrician. He was a union cable splicer, uh, saddle maker, boot and shoe repair person, worked construction. And oddly enough, and of course you've read in my book that <clears throat> he was a fairly dark person, not a good guy. Uh, at one point when we were in California, uh, he worked for the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Really? I didn't know that bit. <laughs> kind of like the fox garden, the hen house, <laughs> so to speak. And th- we weren't there very long, and then we moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and uh, spent quite a long time there. Right. So we're going to obviously hear about why your dad was a dark person, but um, or, or what he did, should I say. But do you now look back, see any reason why he ended up becoming so cruel? You know, it's... Uh, I, a, a couple of reasons that I've tried to come up with. He, it, you couldn't blame his parents. They, his parents were, all their life, they lived in Petersburg, Indiana. And they had a farm on the Wabash River. And they were the kindest, most normal, wonderful people ever. <clears throat> I got to know them. They were pretty late in life when I got to know them. And every kid in the community was at their house all the time. Hmm. They just were adored by every kid that ever grew up in that town. So that obviously wasn't the reason. No. My dad was in World War II, and I never have been able to confirm it. Uh, One thing I did confirm at a very early age, my dad was a pathological liar, but he was brilliant because he could remember every lie he ever told. So he could connect them. And he could convince you that anything he said was absolutely true. And he could, you'd have a hard time tripping him up. So he said that he was a prisoner of war in World War II. I know he was in World War II, but I don't know if he was a prisoner or not. He said he was, but I don't know. I really don't know. But at one time... My dad was working in Alaska, putting in the big uh, uh, high-voltage towers across Alaska. That's what he did. He was a lineman as well. And he got electrocuted. Two other guys died in the accident. They were on a a 90-foot tower, and he got electrocuted and fell to the ground, and was uh, in a hospital for probably five or six months that I didn't see him. I was real little, second grade or so, first grade. And then when he came back home, he, uh, he had terrible headaches for years after that. And maybe the trauma of that changed him. But in a way, I 
I thought to myself, there was never a time in my life ever that I wasn't scared of my dad. But after his accident, then I, be, I became more scared, I think. <clears throat> but I think that was already there before yeah. he got hurt. Yeah, if you don't have a, a memory of it being good and then all of a sudden... And that sudden may that... have triggered it and made... Maybe he was just the way he was, but the accident made him more so. And uh, so he really suffered from headaches for years. And it was kind of a funny thing. He would, like in a week, he would have a whole, full, huge bottle of bufferin. He would consume it all in a week. And, and he, I mean, they were bad because there would be tears rolling down his cheeks, you know, 24 hours a day. And uh, my dad was very mean to horses. We always had horses because we were trick ropers and rodeo entertainers as little guys. Again, he made us do that because he was living vicariously through us. That's another story in itself. But he was very mean to horses. And there was this mare, Pinto mare, that he was working with. And he was very abusive all the time. And the mare finally got tired of putting up with him. And she pawed him right in the forehead. And that instant, his headaches stopped. Oh, really? He never had them again. Oh, my god! Isn't that something? That's like, that always makes me think of a title of a book that I was always very amused by the title. And the title was, When God Winks. Just like weird little things that happen. Mm -hmm. That is kind of God's sense of humor, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, you mentioned the roping. So if you wouldn't mind, kind of just... Give, lead us down the road of of how you got into that and the kind of the cruelty that was the undertone. Well, when we lived in in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, uh, my dad, as a younger man, had just become literally obsessed with an old rodeo star named Monty Montana. He was very famous and and uh, worked a lot in the movie business during the singing cowboys days of Gene Autry and Roy Rogers and and. Uh, biggest celebrity the the rodeo business has ever known and he wore the nudie suits and the whole deal and he was a trick roper and a very charming guy and my dad saw him and he just always wished that he could have been that guy and uh, so my dad decided we were going to be that guy me and my brother my dad couldn't trick rope at all. I was going to say, so he, he didn't even learn himself. He just put it he on He could you. spin a little flat loop in front of him, which <laughs> I could show you how to do in 10 minutes. Right. And we had a couple of books of illustrated books of little stick men doing rope tricks and a little explanation how to do it. And, and uh, he started us roping, and I was doing rope tricks at three years old. And uh, I became professional status at six i got my prca card and was getting paid to do it doing it for a living well between three and six you had a choice and this was you know winter country corlane gets cold in the winter we had no place indoors to practice but you'd have to shovel off a bare spot and if it's winter you go out and practice and the choice was you're going to get whipped or you're going to practice well, practice looked pretty good to us. Mm-hmm. This is like <clears throat> five, six years old. Even three, less than that. From three, so four, from, five. From three, you were getting whipped if you didn't. Oh, do yeah. It. So, but we'd practice, 
and and we sort of enjoyed it. We didn't really know. We were too young to even know what the heck it was all about. But it it made our dad happy when we'd practice, and that's really all we wanted because when he was happy, we weren't quite as scared. So we figured that out, and we got pretty handy doing it. And then at six, we started going to rodeos and things. And um, met a lot of people that I knew, you know, over the years, years later. But uh, And at seven years old, we did a Kellogg Sugar Pops commercial. And uh, we were on the cereal box, you know, and we were, we were known as the Sugar Pops kids. That was kind of a big deal to us, you know. By that time, we had moved to Montana. And my dad had a shoe repair shop in a town called Whitehall, Montana. And uh, <clears throat> things just got worse and worse. And uh, he was always abusive, never a time where he wasn't. But if you're raised in that, and you're fairly isolated from other people, you don't know you're being abused. You think that's how everybody lives. But he was a very cruel person. And it was very hard on my mom. He never never abused her physically. Uh, but she would always kind of protect us and the best she could. And it was never really life-threatening. You never thought he was going to kill you. But, boy, he, he had such a cold side to him. My mother, when we were living at Whitehall, we didn't have much money. And so she drove clear over to Ennis, Montana, which was probably over an hour's drive. And she worked in Betty's Cafe every day. And he worked in the shoe shop. Well, she would drop me off after lunch at school, and then she'd head to work, and every day I'd cry, and I'd tell her not to go to work, because it meant that I was going to be home for four or five hours, me and my brother, alone with our dad after school, and that's when things would really go south, when she wasn't around, and of course, he'd tell us, if you ever say a word to her, it's all over for you. And um, every day, uh, I can only imagine how hard I made it on my mom because every day I'd cry and beg her not to go, and every day she'd cry and say she had to. And uh, about that time, 71, no, 1973, uh, she died of diabetes. And uh, she'd had a... <clears throat> I guess us boys probably always held it against our dad because he always thought he always thought he was smarter than everybody else. And she'd had lots of diabetic reactions when we were younger. She was a very severe diabetic. And, and we would call the ambulance, and they would get her in the hospital and get all of her blood sugar back in balance, and she'd come home. It was almost like you got used to it. And, of course, in those days, they didn't control diabetes like they do today. They can do so much more for diabetics than they ever could then. Well, my mom had had the flu, and so she'd been in bed all day. Well, if you're not eating, you don't need to take insulin. Well, my dad, 
he gave her a bowl of soup that night. And me and my brother, we're just little guys. You know, I was maybe 10 or 9 or 10. And uh, we said, Dad, will, will Mom need some insulin now after having a bowl of soup? And he just dismissed us. And he said, you little bastards, mind your own business. I'll take care of my wife. So we, he scared us and we went to bed. And in the middle of the night, she had gone through the stages of what would be a diabetic reaction, went through the stage of delirium. The next is a coma. And uh, <clears throat> she, by the next morning, she was in a coma. And my dad woke us up. He realized it then. And rather than call the ambulance, he hauled her to the hospital in Ennis, which was a little nothing hospital, about twice the size of my horse trailer. When there was perfectly good health care in Bozeman, a bigger town, or Butte, which is a big town, could have probably helped her. And my mom was six foot tall. She's a big lady. And uh, we had to, all three of us, put her in the pickup. And uh, she was pretty far gone because the last thing I remember is urine running over my hands because I was picking up her feet to put her in the truck. That's my last memory of my mom. And so, you know, we were really small. I was fourth or fifth grade. My brother was in the seventh or eighth grade. And he just headed to the hospital and he just left, never said a word. And there we were for four days. No call or anything from my dad. Nobody come in and checked on us. We just kind of scrounged around and ate what we could and and um, didn't go to school. We just stayed home and worried, you know. And the uh, it's kind of a cool story in a way at the end. But anyway, my dad came home four days later, and he walked in the house, and he said, Well, boys, she's gone. He just walked out of the house. He didn't hug us or comfort us. We're like, what do you mean gone? He said, she's dead. And that's it. And uh, it's a hell of a thing. But years later... I had, I, I got to be friends with a lady who was a nurse in that hospital. And this was probably 30 years later. <clears throat> she said, I was your mom's nurse in the hospital, just so you know. And she said she'd been in a coma the whole time for over three days. And she said they had a TV going to try to stimulate her back to consciousness. And uh, she said... You boys' Sugar Pops commercial played on TV. And after it played, she died. Really? We were talking about When God Winks. That's yeah. another moment. 30 yeah. years later to meet yeah. that lady and hear that. Isn't that something? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. That was kind of her way of saying goodbye, I guess, you know? Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you, you you know, you told us about the cruelty, though. Um, let me make sure I get the the names right. So, I'd love to hear where Coach Claverly and then Sheriff Johnny France um, got you out, and then Forrest and Betsy Shirley took 
took you guys yeah, in? Yeah, well, after that, things got bad in a hurry with my dad. It, it went from just abuse to most people that have been around domestic violence, they know that it always escalates. They always go to another level each time. And this got to the point to where over the next couple of years, my dad had started really drinking a lot. And he was never an alcoholic. But he became one in a few months because he wanted to die. And that was his way of committing suicide, just drinking himself to death, kind of a bit of a coward's way of going about it. But that was what I reckoned, because he was never a out-of-control drinker. Well, then the more he dr- drank, the more violent he became, of course. And it had escalated to the point to where every day walking home from school, my brother and I would have the same conversation, which is a pretty sick thing to do when you're in the seventh grade. We would ponder whether we would live through the night and walk to school the next day. And we would ponder that if he killed one of us, would he then feel compelled to kill the other one so nobody would talk? And that was our daily conversation. That's a hell of a thing for our little guy to have to think about every day of his life. Well, anyway, there'd been some pretty good beatings to where it was kind of noticeable at school. But in those days, law enforcement didn't interfere much in domestic things like that. That was a a family issue. And our teachers kind of reported it. And and, uh, the sheriff just said, no, stay away from it. Except Johnny France, at the time, he wasn't sheriff. He was deputy. He became sheriff years later. Johnny France was, was good buddies with Coach Cleverly. And Coach Cleverly uh, talked to Johnny, and he said, we got to do something. we got to get those kids out of there. And uh, Johnny, my dad had, over the past year, had married this mail-order woman that came from Indiana. He, she answered an ad for a housekeeper, and it wasn't too long. My dad had married her, and she had a son. Well, she, too, had seen the, the the latest beating. He was on pretty good behavior for a couple of months after he married her. And then he went back to his old ways. Well, she was worried her son was going to die in the process. So she split. So between her and Johnny France and Coach Cleverly, they decided we should be taken away from there. And Johnny defied the sheriff as deputy, he said, if it's my job, it's my job. I'll get another one. I'm going to get those boys. And at first he put us with this lady who was, I guess you could call her our stepmom because she'd married my dad. She's split and she's going to leave. So she, and we were reluctant to leave because in a situation like that, if you leave, you know, there's no going back. And if you leave, we figured we were dead. And she said, don't you worry, I'll raise you boys just like 
you're my own. So you'll be okay with me. And, and I was friends with her son. So we stayed with her for about a week. And she said, get in, boys. We're going to take a drive. And she drove to the Madison County Courthouse and uh, said, get out. She said, I'm sorry, boys. I, I don't have any money. I can't raise three boys. I can hardly raise my own. They'll take care of you here. And we were sitting on the front steps of the courthouse. Had nothing. At least we'd had a dad a week before. Now, granted, he probably would have killed us, but that was more than we had at that point. And a guy named Emery Smith walked out of the courthouse, and nice old guy. He was a social worker for Matt, for Madison County. And a uh, nice old fella. He come out, and he said, I heard you boys were coming. He said, come on into my office. He said, we got it worked out. He said, You're gonna, you know Johnny France. He's going to take you boys for a little while. And uh, we think we got it figured out where you're going to go. And we got to talking to him. And he said, do you have any family that would want you? And we were like, no. Because my mom's side of the family, they all knew what we were going through. And none of them stepped up and said, we'll take the boys. None of them. My mom's sister never said a thing. And we said, well, we kind of have an aunt and uncle in California. They're not really an aunt and an uncle, but we've always called them that. They seemed like they liked us pretty good. So he contacted them. And they said, yeah, we can take them, but we're going to be gone all summer. We can't take them till fall. So Johnny France said, we're going to take them to the Shirley Ranch for the summer. They can be there all summer. They'll be on a ranch and they can just be ranch kids and help and work for being there. And they've taken in a lot of kids. So we stayed there, and time was coming up. School was going to start. And, gosh, we didn't want to go to California because our, our fake aunt and uncle, they lived in a, in a trailer park in Nevada, California. He worked for the city water department, and she just kind of sat around, smoked cigarettes, and drank, you know. Typical. Kind of a real cliched thing you'd see <laughs> in the movies, you know. And we told Betsy, our foster mom, we said, can we stay? We don't want to leave. And and she was, gosh, a little bitty lady about five feet tall. And Forrest was about 6'4". And he was a tough guy, stern old guy, but fair. But when it comes to things about kids, she was a boss. And she told Forrest, she said, called him Papa. She said, Papa, those boys are staying. So... That was actually the first the first time I remember the night. It was the first time I ever felt safe in my life, as far as when I went to sleep at night. I it was the it was and I remember I was fell asleep on a little bench. Forrest was there and uh we were watching TV, watching football or something. And there was a stack of Navajo blankets right there and I finally just laid over and Put my head on it, went to sleep. I eventually had to get up and go to bed, but I went to sleep, and I went to sleep so easy because I just thought, 
tonight I don't have anybody to be scared of. It was the best sleep I ever had. And what age was that? Oh, uh, 12. See, that's heartbreaking. My son's and, 12 right now. And, uh, but I, in a way, and I know it sounds kind of weird, but to have that, to experience that feeling of the first time in your life being absolutely safe, having seen the dark side my whole life up to that point. I wouldn't trade that feeling for anything. I wish everybody could feel how euphoric that was to be free from all of that fear. It's an amazing feeling. And if you never went through that, you, you'd have a hard time kind of relating to how good that felt to me. Yeah. And so just the gratitude just for what we all take for granted. Yeah. 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 Amazing. So, well then, so I'd love to kind of explore then how after watching your dad be brutal to horses and and basically you were a child version of what he was doing to the horses how you found your way discovering the compassion side of of the relationship between a human and a horse i was always i was always really tender-hearted always was yet i wasn't a i wasn't a wimpy kid you had to be tough where i grew up but but I was always really tender-hearted. And my brother wasn't. He wasn't. And when we went to live with the Shirleys, he, he would be kind of mean to me at times, but, you know, nothing where I thought he was going to kill me or anything. But I would have thought we'd have been closer than that after having lived through a lot of near-death experiences, you know. But uh, it made my brother hard. The circumstances of our lives, it made him hard. Made him hard on the inside. And yet he eventually got out of high school and went into the Coast Guard for a career and had a successful life in the Coast Guard and was well-respected. I've rarely seen him just really happy maybe never very he became very stoic and introverted and he was he wasn't really that way when he was a little boy but he'll he'll never be any different than what he is but he's a good guy and he's a good man and he raised three kids and he never did anything to his kids like what happened to us so that circle was broken with us so he learned enough from it how to be a better dad than what ours was but he never never has found true happiness and i don't suppose he will really and that's that's what's sad because it's interesting listening or watching the documentary you you talk about you know your foster parents and um, you know, your daughter and your wife, but there's not really a mention of him. So I was kind of curious as to what that is. And then that's two different um, reactions to the trauma that you yeah. guys had. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the choices. Like I said, it's you get to a point in your life where it's all about free will. How are you going to deal with it? Or maybe the right answer is, is you don't really have to deal with it. 
Because, you know, you'll hear a lot of stuff on TV about, did you find closure with this? Or, or a lot of that's just a bunch of BS. You don't always find closure. You don't always reconcile all these things that have happened to you. Sometimes you just have to move on and go, that was then, and this is now. And I live in the moment. Because it's not always going to be wrapped up with a tight little bow on it or everything's all okay now. You know, all the damn therapy in the world. Well, this will probably ruffle some feathers, but I've known some therapists and some of them were kind of nuts. Which may have been what got them into psychotherapy in the first place, the self-analysis. Yet I've known some that are really helpful and, and can change lives that are legit but there are some people that i meet just in this business oh i do therapy on this and therapy on that and it's like yesterday you couldn't spell it and today you are one right yeah that's true that's the problem we have with with our community too is that you know you'll have a firefighter or a a soldier sent to a therapist who then breaks down in tears because they don't they've never heard it before yeah they they don't know what these people do and then so they're not equipped to deal with that kind of trauma right Yeah, in reality, and we've talked about this a little bit, but in reality, it's getting to be very popular. They'll probably find out in the end that horses are a hell of a lot better therapists than any human ever started to be. Mm -hmm. I think dogs are too. Yeah. I really do. Yeah, there's something to it. And I'm not saying you'd do it without a human there kind of helping the person to understand what was taking place and the interaction maybe between the dog or the horse and the person needing help but there's just something pure and good about the animals and how that applies to people who are just trying to get their act together you know about the time about the time we were taken away from my dad uh, we went into a foster home, and and my foster dad was a a rancher, but more so a cowboy, and and he uh, he was really kind of the first, I'd say probably the first man that I ever really thought I wanted to be like, and and uh, that's where I kind of got inspired to uh, to want to be a cowboy and learn about horses and. And this was, I was still in high school then, but it seemed like, for me, the the horses were a, sort of a, re- a refuge for me. And I rode, I rode young horses all through high school because um, my foster parents, they were, they didn't have much money. They were poor. They, they gave us plenty of love, but we had to work and pay for our, our food and our clothes and anything that we needed in the world. So my foster dad told me not too long after we we moved there, he said, listen, son, he said, I don't know if you're ever going to amount to much, but he said, so I'm going to show you how to shoe a horse and I'm going to show you how to ride a colt. And then that way, you'll always be able to eat. I won't have to worry about you. <laughs> and and that's kind of where it got started for me. I rode colts all through high school. And I'd get up at four in the morning and ride a couple of horses before we'd, we'd uh, go down and get on the school bus. 
And then uh, in the nice weather, nice parts of the year, I'd ride a culture too in the evenings as well. So I was making a decent living while I was still in high school. And and uh, that's where I first heard the name Ray Hunt. And that was from a, my business math teacher and typing teacher. They don't even teach typing, I suppose, anymore in schools. But, but uh, her and her husband had a little ranch. And they raised horses, and she had been to a, a clinic that Ray Hunt put on in the Madison Valley. And uh, she knew I was kind of a local yokel cult starter, and, and, you know, thought I was kind of a bronc rider, and kind of had a bit of a reputation locally. So she tried to tell me about this Ray Hunt and the amazing things that he could do with horses, and and I just sort of brushed it off, and, you know, teenager, kind of cocky, and, I said, oh, he's probably just some horse show guy. And uh, so she said, well, I'm not going to argue with you, but maybe if you ever get a chance to run across him, you should look him up. He could do you a lot of good. And then uh, flash forward another year or two, and then I'm out of high school. And uh, it just so happened that I I was looking for a cowboy job out of high school. That's really all I wanted to do was be a cowboy on a ranch. And initially, when I left home, I got a job for the summer, putting up hay and irrigating and doing all the things I hate to do. And uh, I'd been, all summer long, I'd been talking to this cow outfit that I knew they had a cowboy crew and I wanted them to hire me. And uh, they kind of kept putting me off and putting me off. Well, finally, I, uh, I had a small accident with a swather. I don't know if you know what a swather is, but it's what you cut hay with. I, I'm distinguished as being the only guy in Madison County, Montana, that ever rolled a swather. It, uh, it kind of ran off with me. and had a big, big wreck. I didn't get hurt. But uh, needless to say, the boss wasn't too happy when I walked into the headquarters. And uh, But it was interesting this friend of mine, Monty, that I used to play basketball with, we we're both working on that hay, hay ranch. And that morning, I rolled my bedroll while we were having coffee. And he said, what in the hell are you doing? I said, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to roll my bed this morning. And uh, so by the end of the day, I had, had wrecked the guy's swather. But it was kind of his fault because he didn't maintain it. And, you know, it malfunctioned. But nevertheless, I was driving it. So as I walked by the shop at headquarters, he asked where his beloved swather was. And I said, it's up there in the field. And uh, he said, what's he doing up there? I said, it's resting. It tried to kill me, and I won. Um, he didn't see the humor at the time. So he said, well, you can just pack your... I said, oddly enough, it's already packed. I said, I'll be seeing you. And five minutes later, I was driving away in my pickup, so I stopped at the at the bar in Harrison, and I called that cow outfit, and I said, listen, I need a job now, because I just left this one. I said, so if you want a cowboy, you got to hire me right now. And they said, well, come on down. We don't really need anybody right now, but come on down. And the boss met me there, and he said, you see that pen of horses over there? I said, yeah. He said, well, every one of them has either run away, buck somebody off, lift over backwards. Every one of them been ruined. If 
by one cowboy or another. And if you can prove to me that you can make a living on those horses, you've got a job you can stay. And if you can't handle it, you might as well keep right on going. And I said, yeah, no problem. They looked fine to me. And, well, they weren't. They were some tough boogers. And, but it just so happened, you know, I, was, I wasn't super skilled, but I was pretty tough. And I rode, rode those horses for a couple of months, and lo and behold, that ranch is the ranch that was kind of hooked into Ray Hunt. And since I'd survived a couple of months, not necessarily doing Ray Hunt stuff, but just kind of gritting it out, they sent me to a Ray Hunt clinic, and gosh, the rest is history. And I rode with them for the next 35 years and got to be like family to Ray and Carolyn. In fact, that's who I'm going to see tomorrow in uh, Australia. Me and Carolyn are doing an event there. So, yeah, it's I just landed at the right place at the right time. And I often thought that because of all the dark things that I went through when I was a kid, almost like God one day just thought, well, you know what, maybe we ought to throw the little bastard a bone. Maybe we ought to give him a break. well when in the documentary they they show the clips of you know people old old clips of people breaking horses you know whipping them and and all the cruelty that goes along with that going back to to ray's early life so what was it that kind of enlightened him to using the polar opposite using the kindness and compassion into not breaking a horse but getting a horse to trust the person that it's with kind of doing it old school, you know, and, and it, you know, and, and in fairness, a lot of the old timers, they weren't all just cruel barbarians either, you know, some were worse than others. And of course, you know, that looks more dramatic to see old videos of people just molesting a horse, but not all of them were that way, but it was most certainly rough and there wasn't much of the, the psychological part uh, coming into play with the way they worked horses. But Ray, as he had become a really well, well-known and renowned cowboy in the Great Basin. And he had a horse that he just couldn't get along with named Hondo, which was a pretty famous horse later on. And he had heard about this, this guru named Tom Dorrance. And, and, you know, Tom Dorrance was, you know, like, Yoda or something, you know. Uh, he was a genius with horses. And and uh, Tom, in his early life growing up in Oregon, had devoted himself to finding a way to, to work with horses that, as if maybe the horse got to help you make up the rules, how you'd get him to understand. And he spent his whole life studying the horse. And and I got to know Tom in later years. And, and I said, how did you do it? How did it all start for you? And he said, well, he said, I grew up a very small kid. I couldn't overpower horses like the the other kids could that were bigger and stronger and more athletic. And he said, and plus, I just didn't like how they worked with horses. I didn't think a horse should have to go through that much trouble to be able to do a job for you. And he said, so I, he said, I know it sounds crazy, but I just started Everything I'd do with a horse, I would just do the opposite of what everybody else was doing. No matter how outlandish it seemed, I'd do the opposite. And he said, 
often than not it worked. He said, sometimes it didn't. But he said, that's where my experimenting began. And he said, I, I would try things and fail and try again and succeed and remember it. And it just so happened that Tom Dorrance had a, a photographic memory. And he told me one time, he said, I remember every moment of my life. And I thought, holy crap, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> but uh, so because of that, he was able to acquire so much knowledge in the 94 years that he was here. And uh, the first person that he really shared it with to a great extent was Ray Hunt. And Tom always said that Ray Hunt was his greatest student. And but it was an it was an uh, like a perfect storm because Ray was at a desperate time in his life to find a way to work with this horse. So he met Tom, and then they spent almost nonstop the next nine years together and. Without Ray Hunt bringing this style of horsemanship to the world, nobody would have ever heard of Tom Dorrance. But likewise, without Tom Dorrance, Ray Hunt would have just been another cowboy in the Great Basin and would have remained in obscurity. So it was it was it was a divine meeting that the two of them became friends. Now, so you've got Ray as Tom's you know student, and then you as Ray's. Do you see any yeah. similarities in personality of, of that young person who first went in and met that mentor, knowing that probably there were many others that went there and just weren't the right fit? Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, like I was, you know, kind of looping back to the the personality differences, say, between my brother and I and how we dealt with uh, some of the more difficult things in our childhood. Um, I was always a really tender-hearted kid, and uh, that was that was part of my makeup. And so it was almost like that was so much a part of my being that no matter what happened to me, um, that that wasn't going to change at all. And Yet I think some people are, from a series of of uh, unfortunate events, some people are changed by it. That they may they may not have been that person had had things not gone wrong in their earlier life. They might have been someone else. So then, when you're working with Ray, what to, to turn it around the other way? What was it he saw in you that made him realize that you were? the right person to walk through the door? Well, first of all, he saw right off that I'm, I'm capable of working really hard and being absolutely focused. And, and he noticed when he was teaching, there was never a word I missed. There was never a time where he picked up on a rein or moved a foot that I didn't see it. He knew how focused I was and he knew how bad I wanted it. He got a sense of that pretty early on. And I think that made him feel like investing his time with me was, was worthwhile. Yeah. And I, and I remember looking at, uh, you know, noticing that when you were teaching at the, the workshop that I got to sit into, 
that even though, you know, it was a pretty big arena and people weren't exactly right next to you, that you were picking up on like too much pressure and a spur or, you know, just a little bit too much, you know, pull on the rain or whatever it was. And I, and I noticed the same thing, like you, even though they were all circling around you, you were able to notice even the tiny little uh, mistakes that some of these riders were making. you know that's experience you know i'm just starting i'm just starting my 38th year since my first clinic so yeah i've got quite a bit of experience at it now i believe i'm the old guy doing this (laughs) i'm starting to believe that myself trust me i'm 45 which is not old but yeah it's you know you start thinking yeah, the, this movie came out at this time. You're like, oh my god, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what I'd love to do then is just transition to, you know, as the quote unquote horse whisperer. You know, the 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 uh, principles that that Tom taught Ray and Ray taught you. What are some of the the common mistakes you see now with these horse owners? Because I mean, again, I've had some some canine. Um, officers and, and members of the military and they talk the same thing it's usually the the owner of the the dog that's making the mistake so what are some of the most common things that you've seen over this entire you know three plus decades um with these horse owners well you know it does harken back to of course i wrote the line for redford in the horse whisper when he said i don't help people with horse problems i help horses with people problems um, of course, Redford didn't ever tell anybody I wrote that. It's a world exclusive now. It got his attention. You know, he was like, I get what you're talking about. And really and truly, it's that people don't understand the nature of a horse. They don't understand why he does what he does, what he's thinking, what he's really feeling. They don't, And they don't understand how to approach a horse with a feel, and I don't mean in that physical sense, I do partly, but with a feel that fits the horse, that can be reassuring to the horse, that can give comfort to the horse. You know, there, an extreme version of it is, I was talking about a, a person that, that's a kind of a mutual friend of mine and another friend, and, and how, uh, how he struggles with working with horses. And he said, what is the deal with him? And I said, you know what? If you poked a wire up his butt, he could light half of Vegas. And it's it's his nature that needs to change in order to fit horses. And he's working at it. But it doesn't come easy for him. And, and uh, but anybody can really learn this. But it's going to take some some knowledge. And it's going to take a lot of hard work, a devotion. And it takes a hell of a lot of humility because there's going to be a lot of times you're going to have to admit you're wrong. That's not easy for people. A lot of times what what happens is if a horse is doing something that the owner thinks is wrong, well, it's right to the horse or he wouldn't be doing it. But they take it personal. And it's not personal to the horse. He's doing the best he can to survive. Another thing that I really kind of resonated with in the documentary was the whole concept of fear um and you know we talk about 
even when I was little, like I said, my father was a horse vet, a veterinarian, so I was around horses my whole childhood. But, you know, yeah. you could see, even as a small kid, that when someone was scared of horses, same with dogs, they pick up on that, you know, and then that, that anxiety seems to project back onto the horse as well. So, what are oh, your, yeah. what are your philosophies when you're teaching these clinics on, on fear? Well, n- number one, it all goes back in the clinics to helping the person to understand that the thing they first and foremost need to communicate with the horse is, look, you're a herd animal, and you need to understand about me that I'm capable of moving your feet. I'm capable of getting you to yield to me, but you need to know I don't want you to yield to me because you're afraid. I want you to yield to me because it's the easiest thing for both of us. Both of us will feel relief through that. So that's why I'll have people work with horses on the ground first, on the end of a lead rope, to start the dance, what's going to be a great dance their whole life. That's where the dance begins. And when a person feels like they they absolutely do have some influence on how that horse moves his feet, that gives them confidence that when they get on, they can expect the same thing. Yeah, so when there's when there's trust and the fear starts to diminish, then it's uh it magnifies, you know, that relationship with every single time they're getting back on. Sure, and and they'll through working with them on the ground before they ride them, they'll start to recognize the horse actually turning loose to them, giving to them, giving everything and giving up his his fear or his inclination to defend himself. And uh that that moves people and it moves them in the right direction to where they, to where they're inclined to, to offer the horse something that's very fitting when they get on. But fear can be, fear can be paralyzing for the human and the horse. Well, speaking of that, have you got any stories that kind of pop to mind of some broken horses slash people that you've worked with? Um, that have had an incredible journey together and, and a lot of healing? Well, you know, actually, no. I can't single out one person. But I'll tell you this. I've, If I had, I, and I have quite a few, but I've kept some, some letters over the years. But if I had kept them all, it would fill my hotel room I'm sitting in right now of people that in one way or another through working with the horse and becoming acquainted with me, how it profoundly changed their life in a way that another human couldn't have given them that. I mean, there, there are thousands of stories and every one of them is, is, uh, really important to the person that wrote me the letter. You know, it's, and I wouldn't say that every single person that goes to a clinic is going to have, a life-changing experience. Some are going to go home just thinking, well, I'm getting along a whole lot better with my horse. I can get him to do some things I never got him to do before, and I know more than I did last week. But there is always going to be a percentage of them that the horse will profoundly change their life for the better. And and uh, those are the those are the stories that you Yeah, well, I've heard like several of my peers in, you know, first responder and military community 
have such a powerful response to equine therapy when they've, you know, we're dealing with things like PTSD. What is it you think the about the horse and that relationship that's healing for a human that maybe hasn't even ridden much before? Well, you know, I think, and I'm no expert on PTSD, but again, I've often pondered that maybe I, maybe I have that as a kid, because gosh knows I dealt with life and death every single day through my childhood, but we didn't even know what it was then, so maybe I do know something about it. I'd say <laughs> but, so. I really would. But I do, but I do know this, that there's something profoundly comforting about the horse when he does respond to you and, and all of the, the possibilities of negativity that could come out in a person from having endured really traumatic things in their life, every one of those negative characteristics will guarantee you fail with a horse. The horse won't cover for you. He won't respond in spite of that. He just won't. And, Frankly, um, dogs are not always that way. Sometimes dogs will respond really positively to people that you just think, why would that dog even like that person? It's a different animal. The dog is a different animal, and yet they can be so beneficial in helping people. But the horse is a little more choosy. There's something really unique about the horse, that when the horse responds to a person, like I've often said to people, if if your horse says you're a dirty SOB, well, you are. And yet if the horse, by the way he responds to you, he says you're a good guy, you are. You don't need me to tell you that. The horse just did. And I think that might be why the horses are so profoundly effective in helping troubled people. Well, it seems like it's, a, it's almost like a great mirror, like you, you were saying. It's showing you what you are, but then as you improve as a, as a person with your emotional journey, the, it's, you know, as long as you haven't destroyed the trust at the beginning, it's then going to come along with that journey. And when you realize the horse trusts you, I'm assuming that then that individual is going to have realization that they are at a certain point way further than they ever were before. Absolutely. I've said it a million times over the years, the horse is a mirror to your soul. So kind of transitioning from that for a moment, um, you obviously had um, you know, very rocky childhood. Um, what was it like for you when you became a father? Because I know that you talk about the cycle with your, you and your brother breaking that, and that's absolutely something that we talk about on this a lot, where even if you came from alcoholism or abuse, whatever, it's up to that generation to say, you know, this is where it dies. Um, as, a, as a dad now, what was it like when you first became a dad? Uh, you know, it was, I'd had years to think about it. And it was pretty much the opposite about it, pretty much the opposite of what I grew up experiencing as a, as a little guy. Uh, I had a, I had a really good idea what kind of a dad I wanted to be because I had a really clear idea what kind of a dad I didn't want to be. And, uh, so honestly, I didn't. I didn't struggle that much with it. 
Um, I've got an amazing relationship with my daughter and always have had and always will. And not the kids still can't be difficult. Anybody who's a parent gets that, you know, they're going to, they're going to give you a hard time at times, but you know, that's just part of the experience of being a parent. But, um, but I guess for a while when Riata was small, I, I sort of, sort of, uh, always had it in the back of my mind to sort of police my behavior just trying to make sure that I noticed if if even a little bit of my dad surfaced in me, that I would know it right away and do something about it. And I guess I, I sort of lived a little bit in fear of that for the first few years. And then I realized, well, that's not going to happen. So get over it, quit worrying about it. Because <laughs> yeah, that's something that's not spoken about. You know, we talked about the horse being a mirror to your soul, I think that our children are as well. And obviously there's two parents involved at a minimum, you know, unless one is completely left. Um, and yep. I, I think that's something that we need to pay to pay attention to as well as if your child is acting a certain way, then you need to also look in the mirror and see if that's something you're projecting on your child as you would a horse. Yeah. Well, it's the, like that old saying goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Yeah, exactly. Now, very kind of, tangent question but i know when i was uh watching you i don't know why this popped into my head but so you you you're using kindness and compassion and blowing everyone's minds when it comes to the horse world you know and these people that are clearly been in the horse world for a long time you know are, are attending your clinics and having these amazing breakthroughs and it made me think about for example the way we do the prison system here we take broken humans and they are broken because obviously no one is born and becomes a you know laughing little toddler and is like one day I'm going to rob banks or I'm going to deal drugs. You know they're they're taken down that road. So what if you were able to just completely reimagine the you know the law enforcement and and the the prison system, knowing what you know about kindness and compassion with horses, what would be some of the things that you think you would put into that? so that we actually were able to turn these men and women around from the trauma of their past and turn it into positivity? Well, you know, I think there's uh, that's been dabbled with a little bit in that some of the prison programs out west here have done the Mustang thing, having them start horses and work with horses. And, and I think that has been, amazingly enough, a government program that actually succeeded. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> which you don't get to say that very damn often. But, but I, I think that has been a really good thing. And I think there could be a lot more of that. And, you know, I'm not Pollyanna either. Um, I understand that some people are, they are destined to be criminals and they're going to be criminals their whole life, no matter what we try to do. But there are some that aren't. And I think there's probably quite a few that slipped through the cracks that through the right things happening could have found some redemption. And, and again, I think the horse can be a, a big player in that. And it has proven every time they've ever done it in the prison system, it's proven to be a success. Brilliant. I love hearing it. They have dog programs in the prisons too. Like there's just, there's some things that, yeah. that 
we don't do. You know, we use the, it's called the Philadelphia model where we just lock them up into buildings with no windows. Um, and you know, I'm not picking on us. I mean, England does it. A lot of the world does the same system, but you think about all the, the healing elements, you know, the just being in the outdoors, seeing the sun every day, being around animals. You know, these seem to be so, so easy to use and incorporate that maybe, like you said, that middle 50% that maybe we can steer might actually leave and then become functioning members of society. Sure. Well, there's actually um, a few prisons I'm aware of out west here, for, frankly, one in Montana, Deer Lodge, Montana. Um, they have prison ranches, and they learn how to cowboy. They learn how to shoe horses, drive tractors, irrigate, put up hay. Uh, it's just like a regular working ranch. They just happen to be inmates. And, you know, and that's based on, you know, good behavior getting to work on the prison ranch. And they so they learn so many things about agriculture, not just working with horses like I do, but they they end up. A lot of them leaving the Deer Lodge uh, penitentiary and uh, going out on ranches and having a job and being productive. And yeah, so there's some of that that's possible out west here that wouldn't be possible in, you know, in a more urban type setting. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to me. I know we have one of our um, prisons here. They, I know they certainly grow food, and I believe I'm told it's for the prison. Well, that's fantastic because not only do the inmates get to be out there growing it, but they actually get <laughs> nourishing food to eat rather than, you know, whatever the yeah. process alternative, which I think in, in turn is then going to help them feel more vibrant and, and want to do something with their life. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right. Well, then one other thing. So, like you said, you've been doing this 38 years with the clinics. Um, yeah, one element of this whole project is is wellness you know mental wellness that we've talked quite a lot about but also physical wellness as well what is it that you attribute to being so fit and being able to ride and be able to to, to rope and cowboy um you know as when you're not a young man anymore well you know uh it's i think it's a discipline it's a self-discipline that i've acquired through working with the horses that that I think that discipline just becomes how you live. I think it just kind of takes takes your life over. You're you're not going to be a certain way when you work with horses, and then you know a worth, worthless piece of junk when you're when horses aren't present. You know it's the the change just happens in you as a person, and and I've always been I've 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 always recognized the value of being being disciplined in yourself. And it's odd that people will talk about they want their horses to be disciplined and obedient. Okay, I get that. But it has to come from the human first. Yeah, so so not to demonize people that struggle with their weight, but if they are yeah, don't have discipline in their eating, their exercise, and again, there's probably going to be some carryover in how they are as a horse person. Oh, absolutely. And... You know, everybody knows there are different reasons for people to have problems with eating too much. Um, sometimes it's just they're not physical. They're lazy. They're just flat lazy. And it doesn't take a whole lot. If you're living a real sedentary life, it doesn't take a whole hell of a lot of calories to keep you alive. 
And most of the time they take in about a hundred times more than what they need. That's a, that's part of it. But for some people, it's, it's a mental illness too. I think it's their, it's, it starts in your brain. That's where it happens. And you know, some people say, well, he can't help it or she can't help it. Well, I'm not Pollyanna about that either because you know what? I, I'm a, I'm a real uh, World War II buff. I watch all the documentaries on World War II and just love all the stories and the history of it. And of all the film clips I've seen in photographs, I've never seen a fat POW. That's very true. Even I mean, in those era, not even a fat soldier. You think about it. Right. They were thin. All right. Absolutely. Even the soldiers. So, you know, I just think the discipline thing and... And that could be something that goes right back again to the parenting. And if you don't believe me, go to Walmart and start looking up and down the aisles and look at the parents. Yeah. And that- then you look at how they're, look at how they're shopping. They're, they want their kids to, it's like an alcoholic trying to get their kid to drink with them. It's so true. I had a dear friend. I had a dear friend in South Carolina. I met him out West here, cowboy. But he was from South Carolina. His mother was a horrible alcoholic. His dad, who knows where the hell he went. And he came out west and was kind of doing pretty well as a cowboy and and drank a little, but not a problem. And uh, he eventually moved back home to South Carolina and his mother turned him into a full-fledged alcoholic because she wanted a drinking partner. And she was a very uh, domineering woman psychologically with her son. And he actually hosted some of my clinics, early ones in South Carolina, North Carolina. And I got a phone call one night that uh, he was found in a ditch, dead, overdosed on alcohol. And his mother killed him. She lived another 10 years. And it's terrible to say it, but it would have been a blessing if she had died 20 years before. He he'd still be around today. And, you know, just that kind of stuff. And it goes back to the parenting thing again. Yeah. And even with, I talk about this a few times on, on the show, the, the schools, like, uh, don't get me wrong. The parents have to be parents first. And I totally understand that. And I try and do my part in, you know, in, in my son's lives. Yeah. But, um, you know, when we're te- feeding these children the processed crap that they have in the schools now, you know, what is that telling them? Like, hey, this is normal and, you know, we don't want to fat shame, so it's okay if you're getting obese at the age of 12 and that's not the way it should be. We should be giving our kids the best food. We should teach them how to cook and letting them already understand the health problems that come with obesity and some of these other areas. Yeah, you know, and it's something that, you know, people are so... Uh, oversensitive about being politically incorrect, and it doesn't mean that that you're you don't love people who are overweight or someone who is handicapped in some way. Being morbidly obese, you're you're just as handicapped as you would be if you were born without a leg. Um, it's it is a handicap, but some of it is created by bad choices. Just like what you said, in the schools, what they're feeding kids and telling kids it's all right to put into their body. Um, I know this, that the stereotypes that go along with someone who is overweight and been overweight their whole life, 
I'm not saying it's right. It's not right. But if you're looking at a, a thin, fit, energetic person, and then you're looking at someone who is overweight, you know which one you're going to hire. You know which one you're going to hire because there are stereotypes that go along with someone who has a weight problem that they're slothful, they're not motivated, blah, 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 blah. Yet they might be way more qualified than the thin person. So just given that, that that's reality, whether you like it or not, that's reality. Why would you handicap your child? So he's going to be the last one out of the blocks in this race of life. And he's going to lose because you didn't even know, you didn't even know how to feed your child. Yeah. And then it sounds like it's coming from a cruel place, but it's the complete opposite. It's, it's the kindness and compassion. You know yeah. what you can do with a vibrant body. You know, I mean, you can ride, you yeah. can climb, you can surf, you can swim, you can do all these amazing things. So it's, you know, wanting a nation, a world to be, you know, nourished properly for it to come naturally from, from farms where, you know, animals are raised holistically and not cruelly. And, and men and women are, you know, around about the right way. That no one needs to have we walk around with a six pack or, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger's physique, but the ability to right. use the body the way it was given. And, and it's kind of been turned around where you can't say that because that's cruel. It's like, no, what's cruel is that these people are being lied to about all these medications and these foods that are killing them. And the most cruel thing you can do is, is create an environment where someone's children are actually going to die before they do because that's for the first time we've actually got a point where our kids are dying younger than their parents, which is unacceptable. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. But the sometimes you have to be brutally honest about the cause and effect of things and, and people consider you to be, if you are honest in that, that they consider you to lack compassion or that you that you really don't care and i think it's quite the opposite to be honest with you yeah no i couldn't agree more well i want to just cover one more topic and then go to some closing questions so i can let you go because i'm sure you're exhausted from your journey um but traveling so you have you know circumnavigated the globe probably you know <laughs> scores of times um, and you know, you've, you've done clinics in the Middle East and, and the Australia region and Europe. What are some of your favorite places? And also in those journeys, were there any areas where you found that there was a, a greater natural understanding of the way you do horsemanship? Um, you know, innately for some reason in that culture. Well, you know, I, a lot of times people will ask me what's my favorite place to go and honestly I guess it's home because I've spent way less time there than, than anywhere else but it's not really the I've been traveling so much and for so long every place is kind of unique um, what makes me enjoy being at a certain place is really the the really dear people that I've gotten to be friends with over the last almost four decades. Um, I just told some people uh, last fall at a place where I was, I said, listen, to be honest with you, I've seen about all of your state I need to see, and I live in a lot more desirable place than you guys do, but you're here. And I said, the only reason I come back is because I really love spending time with you guys. 
I said, because I'm not coming back for the scenery anymore. I've seen it all. And that's, that's what it is from one week to the next, you know, I'm going to Australia tomorrow and it's 105 there and the whole place is burning up. And would I rather be home? Yeah, I would, but I'm going to seriously see some people that are really dear friends and that are really like-minded people that are their whole year kind of revolves around riding with me in Tamworth, Australia, you know? So with that comes quite a bit of responsibility, but as far as, or as a place to where it's just like a, an anomaly, a, a unique culture. In a way, I guess this should be reassuring. There really isn't one in that people are pretty much the same all over. And they'd probably get along a hell of a lot better if they all understood that about each other. They're not that different. You know, I guess if you took organized religion out of it, There'd be a, quite a few million people still here that uh, that aren't. I mean, the reasons for people killing each other, man, it just doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Nope. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. Well, where I live is Ocala. And when you look at the sign for Ocala, it says horse capital of the world. So my question to the city of Ocala is why... But Brannerman hasn't been to the horse caps of the world in the last 36 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was in uh, Wellborn, which is not very far from there. Right. A few years ago. Yeah, I was there. Just, uh, I've just, there's only so many places I can go a year. I'm just in a lot of the places that I'm still going to. I have a loyalty to them because they're the ones that brought me to the dance. So until somebody says, well, I don't want to do a clinic anymore, put one on for you, then I don't really have a an open date to do it. And I've been doing 40 clinics a year for a long time. But just a little sidebar, um, there are a few other places that call themselves the horse capital of the world, too. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking that because I'm from England. I know we had a shitload of horses there, too. <laughs> So you yeah. go to Lexington and, they'll, and uh, they'll tell you the same thing. That they have a sign, horse capital of the world. Well, we're, we're, we're greedy. We're also lightning capital of the world. So I guess we have all the horses and lightning, which sounds dangerous. But. Yeah, there, you go. there you go. But that is a beautiful area, Ocala. And gosh, there are a lot of horses there. Yes. That's it's really a, it's a, neat, it's a neat place. And I may get there one day. It'd be a good place to come and do a clinic and, I'm sure there'd be plenty of people show up because I've sure had a lot of people ask me to come over the years and just haven't had an open date. But I'll get there eventually, good Lord willing, if I live long enough. Yeah. Well, they just built or a building. It's not done yet. Some ridiculously huge horse arena venue complex, whatever you want to call it. I mean, hundreds of thousands of square feet. So it's it kind of. It, when when the construction happened, some of the horse farms obviously sold and, and they put communities on. Um, I'm st- sitting on one right now, so I'm not going to be a hypocrite about that. But um, I think they're really trying to pull the horse community back to our town. So, you know, you might yeah. find yourself through through that. We'll see. But, I mean, you always have somewhere to stay if you ever yeah. come here. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, then let's go to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um 
So firstly, tell me about your books and I want to also pick your brains about other people's books that you love. Well, the, you know, the, the, the very first book that I ever wrote was, was really more of an instructional book just called Groundwork, The First Impression. And, uh, it was my first attempt at writing and, uh, it really just was a, a sort of a study aid for people that have been to my clinics that have been learning this groundwork that I talk about so much. And, uh, I actually, when I sat down to write the book, what inspired it was there was a really cool book called the little red book on tennis. And it was short to the point, very simple, but, um, really was a phenomenon at one time. And so that's why my book is red. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) But, But when I sat down to write it, and this has been 25 years ago, maybe more, uh, I wrote it in three hours. Really? And I never rewrote it. I had someone go over it for spelling and punctuation, and, and that is it. I wrote one one draft. And uh, 25 years later, I wouldn't change it. I could maybe add a couple of chapters, some stuff that I that I've maybe learned in the last 25 years, but I wouldn't change a thing. So after that, I I got to thinking about some of the stories that I've told over the years in the clinics about horses and people and different things that, stories that moved me. And even some stories that were, that were kind of hard for me to tell because of my feelings I have for the horses, that I was in a place called Mabane, North Carolina. And, and at that time, my wife was with me and, and a fellow named Kip who was working for me. And uh, we were at this bed and breakfast out in this beautiful meadow and kind of in the middle of nowhere, if there's such a place. And uh, my wife was getting all dressed up and they were going to head into town and uh, go shopping or something. And uh, she said, what are you, what are you doing? Why aren't you getting ready? I said, Oh, I'm not going to go. You guys go. I got something I'm going to work on. And she said, what would that be? I said, oh, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to start writing a book. And she she said, about what? I said, well, it's going to be part autobiographical, and then I'm going to sort of change gears about midway and move into stories about horses and people that I think have a a really um, interesting lesson to them, life lesson to them. And I want it to be a book of, that is uh, a book of encouragement to people who may be very well living at a really dark place, that they understand that sometimes uh, you make the right choices, you can make a happy ending out of it. So I said, that's sort of my, my goals on this book. And, of course, Mary said, well, you don't know how to write a book. You're not an author. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to be in a few hours. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, well, how are you going to get it published? I said, I'm just going to tell you this. This is going to be a good book. And I will tell you this. The first publisher I take it to will publish my book. She said, do you know how many people write books that can't get them published? I said, yeah, but that was them, Mary. And uh, she just shook her head and went <laughs> to town. Well, I was wrong. It was the second publisher that I took it to that that uh, published my book. The first one was St. Martin's Press, 
then I'll bet you years later they were thinking, why did we pass on that book? Because um, my and, and that book was The Faraway Horses. It was the first kind of serious book that I wrote. And, and uh, it basically, it was sort of a small niche publisher, never put much money into it. At the time, it was uh, Globe Pequot. And, and they would take people that were kind of specialized in their field. It could be a fly fisherman or it could be, I don't know, a tennis player or something. And they would, the person already had a bit of a name and a reputation. So they knew there was a built-in audience and they would put basically no money into the book and they would print it. And then all the people that recognized the person's name would buy a book and they make a quick million dollars on the book and give the author nothing, and they move on to the next guy. There's lots of publishers work like that. Sounds like a hell of a deal. And, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, they never put any marketing or, or anything behind the book because that just would lower their profits. And uh, now it's sold over 200,000 copies. It's, you know, and of course, the, the, uh, the milestone is 100,000 copies makes it a bestseller. And uh, since then, the last few years, I get contacted fairly often from them that that uh, they wonder if I have another book in me. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Well, you got a lot more stories. Yeah. So you had that, and then you had the uh, Believe as well. What made you write Believe? Yeah, yeah, I wrote Believe after that, and then I wrote a couple other, uh, you know, more uh, specialized books on on ranch roping and handling livestock and things like that that would be, you know, the demographics pretty small for that, but it was something I wanted to do to just kind of have it on record, have it be somebody behind someday. Brilliant. Well, faraway horses I've got, um, I'm going on a cruise with my family in about 10 days. Uh, we, we bought it last year and we waited a year to actually pay for it. <laughs> so, um, but we're, wow. uh, we're leaving in a couple of weeks and that's one of the ones I'm taking with me. So I can't wait to read that. Oh, cool. oh good. Good. Yeah, that's my. I haven't quite finished the Far White Horses project yet. I've I've wanted for years to have it end up uh, a feature film or maybe a cable film um, because and and you tell me after you read it, but it's a it's a story that I I don't feel like I've told the whole story until I do a film on it and and. Uh, well, we even have a script. I've finished the script and just kind of waiting around for the right person to, uh, to help us do the film. And I'm still waiting, but I'm a patient man. It'll happen eventually, but it's, it's hard to compete with, you know, Marvel characters and Spider-Man you know, 65. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, but there are still people out there that, that, that like a good story. Yeah, but I know we were talking about that at the beginning of the interview, actually, when I went back. So for everyone listening, we split this into two. This is over the phone now. But um, yeah, when we were, and, and I agree 100%. Like, uh, you get to my age, you know, middle, middle age, the story's been told over and over again. They literally took my 80s movies and remade the same damn movie. So I crave, you know, an original story, which is what's so amazing about this podcast medium is you get to hear these people and their stories. But I know some of the amazing people that we mentioned at the beginning that, that are 
looking forward to hearing this episode. Hopefully, some of them are connected, and, and maybe that will, you know, help push it yeah, forward. You never, but you never know, right? No, nope. yeah, you never know. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's your book. So, what about um, other people's books? Are there any books apart from the little red book on tennis that that you've loved and and recommended to other people? Well, there was one that. Tom Dorrance and Ray Hunt recommended to me that uh, sort of surprised me. I read it and enjoyed it. It was it was called Kinship with All Life, and it was written by J. Allen Boone. And it's not a not a huge book, but a really thought provoking book. And uh, one also that I that I read that. You know, it's a bit of a dry read, but if you're really looking at self-improvement, it really, uh, it did something for me. And it's called Psycho-Cybernetics. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I haven't, actually. But it's a, it's a, it's an, a, it's an amazing book. It, it really, uh, helps you understand the human mind. In, in ways that you just maybe never thought of it before. And and honestly, based on our conversation and your questions, you would be intrigued by that book, Psycho-Cybernetics. Excellent. Well, I have to get that too. That's not going on the cruise with me. I've got enough books to read as it is, but <laughs> but I'll get it for, uh, for down the road. So thank you. I've never had either of those two recommended, so that's two more to add to the list. All right, so then... And then on the lighter side, I'm probably going to spend my day tomorrow reading a reading a, a Mitch Rapp <laughs> novel. Mitch Rapp? Is that the author or the Mitch character? Rapp. It's the character in it. The, uh, the Lee Child and Vince Flynn, they do the, the spy novels and stuff. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> I kind of enjoy, enjoy escaping to that sometimes. Excellent. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You've got you to have the, the fiction thrown in too. Well, speaking of fiction, yeah, are there any, any movies that you love? I want to talk about documentaries in a moment. Were regular movies? Um, you know, I like to laugh. I, I like good movies that, that, uh, there'd be movies that you probably wouldn't expect that I would like. Now, going back a ways, you being British, you'll appreciate this. A Fish Called Wanda was one of my favorites. Yeah. The, the Monty Python guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh. The Big Lebowski, I think that pretty much connects with about everybody. Yeah. That's <laughs> My wife big... just rolls her eyes. She rolls her eyes. She is not amused by it. I just <laughs> tell her, I said, you know, you, you, just, you just simply don't understand that humor, Marriott. We'll have to watch it together. And she's like, not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever see Fargo, the Coen brothers did? Fargo, I saw that. Yeah. That was a great yeah. film, too. And, you know, there was a movie a few years ago, um, and I, the title of it evades me right now, but it's something, something Lions. And Robert Duvall did it, and who was the other guy that starred in it? And they were a couple of old bachelors that lived together in farm country, and they had been very famous uh, uh, agents and adventurers and military heroes. Secondhand Lions, that's the name of it. I saw that. It was a great film. Oh, that is just that was just one of my favorites. What a what a neat neat film. Was that Michael Caine? Was he the other one? Is that right? Michael Caine. 
2014. That's yes. right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Excellent. Yep. All right. Well, you mentioned World War II documentaries. Excuse me, documentaries. Did you ever see Band of Brothers when it was on? I did and loved it. Yes. Yeah. So, any other documentaries yeah. that that you could recommend? Um, gosh, I'm kind of on the spot, so naturally I'm going to draw a blank <laughs> on that. But I do, you know, I do enjoy uh, documentaries that are. But I, I have to say. The documentaries that I enjoy mostly are the ones that are not politically motivated. Yeah. Documentaries that just tell you a story that you wouldn't have otherwise heard in the mainstream. Those are the kind of documentaries I'm more drawn to. I'm not, I'm, I'm a little bored with the, the documentaries being just a political infomercial for whomever is putting it out. Yeah. No, absolutely. Brilliant. Actually, have you seen the uh, the Ken Burns war ones? I'm, I'm watching the Vietnam one at the moment. It was amazing. I mean, again, it doesn't seem to sway in any particular side. It's just saying how it is. But the history of that I conflict is fascinating. Started, I, I just started the Vietnam one, and my wife has seen it, and she said it is amazing. Yeah, I'm on. I just finished episode one, so we're probably right there at the same place. Yeah. Excellent. Brilliant. All right. So then um, next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and emergency medicine personnel of the world? Well, if you could get him, Tom Brokaw is a really a neat man. And uh, he was the, you know, the kind of the head man at NBC for years and years. Um, Tom Brokaw would be a very interesting person to talk to just because of his years and years in the news business. He is a, he's a really neat, neat guy. Did you ever meet him? Yeah, I did clinics at his ranch in Montana for many years. Know his whole family. Oh, brilliant. So they're, they're good people. Excellent. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, another great person. There's another journalist, Lisa Ling, who's you know one of the the modern ones yep. now. Um, I heard an interview with her with Tim Ferriss. She's another person I would love to get on because all her journalism again seems to come from a kind of kindness and compassion um, route as well. So another person I'd love to get yep. on. All right, so the very last question before we make sure everyone knows where they can find the books and, and your clinics and, and reach out to you. Aside from writing, if there's anything else, what do you do to decompress? I play golf. I love playing golf. I started that about, well, I started playing golf at 50, which uh, turns out you probably should start it sooner. But uh, I play golf everywhere I go and I'm just nuts for it because it's it's a really hard game. I always loved basketball. I was always passionate about that but it's not a game you can play when you travel but golf is and gosh I'm just I'm just nuts about the game. Now what is it about golf because I know there's a couple other people had on the show and and to them they're I think I want to say they're soldiers or you know athletes or something where you know, there's kind of organized chaos in their their world. So the golf for them was just 
there's this ball. I have to hit it a certain way and get it into this this area. And this the simplicity and the the being present element that was it for them. What what's it about? It, you know, I guess a little bit similar to fly fishing, which I'm a passionate fly fisherman too. But it's a it's kind of a Zen like thing that you have to everything else in your world has to disappear for a few hours if you plan on being a good golfer. You have to you have to just put everything else aside and take a mental vacation from everything but hitting that damn ball. And and it's a, it it really is a mental vacation for me. And yet I I don't dabble at it. I don't dabble at anything. Everything I do I try to be good at and so, you know, I I work at that. When I'm golfing, I am working at golfing and being a good golfer. And, and you know, now I'm going to be 58 next month. And uh, and I'm a five handicap. So I can play. I'm no Tiger Woods, but for an old guy that started at 50, I can play. Brilliant. Now, what elements of the horsemanship do you bring to your golf game? Feel. Physical feel. There, it, it, it's not just a mental thing. It's also, it's coordination. It's timing. It's balance. The physical, the physical attributes that would make you a good hand with horses certainly apply to playing golf. And the, and after you read, uh, psycho cybernetics, <clears throat> you'll get that too, <clears throat> because it's visualizing what you want to have happen and make sure that happens. Excellent. All right. Well, then the very last question, if people want to reach out to you, want to find all your work, what's the best place to go to online? Well, Branneman.com would be the best bet. That's my website, and it kind of steers you in in the right direction. And something that is going to be coming up in 2020, late in 2020, is is an I want to I'm not very technical. I'll call it an app or a platform that's going to be launched called Three Rain, spelled like a bridal rain, R-E-I-N. And this Three Rain is going to open up a a new thing for me in terms of education. It's going to make it possible for people to go to that app and <clears throat> download to their phone little vignettes of me, five minutes, 10 minutes, and full-length videos if they want to where you don't have to buy DVDs anymore and wait for them to show up in the mail. It's going to make the education part of it just, it's going to revolutionize it for me. And over the years that I have left, I'm going to put as much content on that as I possibly can. And so it would be something to look for in the fall of 2023, right? Brilliant. You're literally about 30 years too late because if you see me ride when I was a small child on the, the farm I grew up in, I think I needed an entire encyclopedia, but <laughs> it seems like a, a great <laughs> app for uh, for everyone now. And then again, I was telling my wife just, just a moment ago how this this podcast has been so incredible because I get Josh Brolin who recommends your documentary. I watch Buck and then, you know, a few months later, I'm sitting in the arena watching you do the clinic and then now we're talking again. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's so amazing to, 
to to talk to you face to face, but watching you work, anyone out there who who rides, and I grew up with horses. I was you know, not a not a good horseman, just I guess brave. <laughs> it was the only thing, and I had a very big helmet. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it was incredible to watch and and seeing the different personalities that were circling that arena. Some you could see had humility. Some you could see were peacocking and trying to show everyone how they already had it. And it was it was kind of you know interesting to see how those personalities reflected in their horses, reflected in in you know the instruction that you were giving. But uh, yeah, I, I cannot speak highly enough of attending one of your clinics i hope that ocala one day is able to bring you here um but i just i thank you so much for your vulnerability i mean telling your story of you know very sad traumatic childhood but being that beacon of life uh, excuse me of light taking that trauma and doing this incredible thing with it and, and as you said stopping that cycle um is inspiring to me as an englishman and a, a firefighter that tripped over your you know your work um but I mean, anyone in the horse world, anyone that owns an animal of any sort, you know, they need to to look into your work. And I can't wait to read your book. So thank you so much for being so generous and, and coming on this podcast. Well, it's kind of you to say all those nice things. Sounds like you'd be talking about someone else. Really. I don't know <laughs> that I deserve all that. But... Well, I'll look forward to our paths crossing again, James. <laughs>